following program was made possible by Ward's lawyers. Find us at wardlegal.ca. Episode 50. We've now done 50 of these episodes, so thanks for listening and helping to make that happen. On today's 50th episode... We're not making a movie about something that used to happen. We're making a movie about something that is still a problem right now. You'll recognize Megan Park on screen in her role on the ABC series Secret Life of an American Teenager. But the Canadian woman who spent her early formative years in Kawartha Lakes is earning accolades for her work as the writer-director of a riveting movie now streaming on HBO Max and Crave TV. She joins us to talk about what inspired her to create the fallout. The Victoria County Disaster Trust Fund is facing a challenge in finding volunteers. Andrew Afton makes the pitch for people wanting to make a difference, oftentimes in the middle of the night. Ah, the life of a farmer. You up for it? Well, maybe you think you're up for it. We'll tell you about a new free webinar series that can help steer you to raising steers or chickens or sheep or, or, you know, provide you with all the kinds of ag-related wisdom and guidance before you make the leap. My name is Denis Grignel. Shifting gears on my tractor, raising the front bucket, then lowering it to bring you another bushel of the Advocate Podcast, Stories from Kawartha Lakes. Well, here's a newish word I've heard way too often in the past month or so, overreach. It's not that I don't like new words. It's just that that word, overreach, has been overused. So yeah, time for a new word that won't raise our ire. Well, there's a couple of words that I probably should never put together. Tough to pronounce, our ire. I'm confident that we are now all about to learn a new word that we will all welcome. In this regular segment on the show we call... Well-defined. What does that mean, anyway? Well-defined. According to the dictionary, I think that... Lindsay Heffernan is a library specialist, outreach and community engagement with Kawartha Lakes Public Library. I'm with her now in the lower level of the main branch on Kent Street here in Lindsay. Thank you once again, Lindsay, for doing this. I'm happy to be here. I do enjoy this uh, particular segment of the podcast. Oh, great. Well, it's the favorite of many people. Okay, before we get to uh, the new entry that we're all happy to add to our duffel bag of words, March break is coming up. That was always a special time for me and my wife and our two sons when they were little kids coming out here. So I'm going to guess you have stuff coming up, especially because things are opening up a little bit. What do you have planned? We do, and we're very excited about it. Um, we have a couple outdoor story walks, which, as you know, Denis, have been very popular at the pa- in the past couple of years. We also have a giant uh, special take-home pack. So we are still doing our monthly take-home packs. But this is just a special one-off bonus March break one we've got. Um, It's going to include tons of things like a grain growing activity. We have partnered with an organization that provides us a little um, soil puck and uh, either a wheat or soybean seed. And kids can uh, watch these grow at home and take care of that. It comes with a great measuring um, tool and all those sorts of things. So it's a great uh, educational opportunity. Uh, The City of Kawartha Lakes has put together a great winter family fun guide and tons more. 
There are definitely enough activities to entertain the whole family, we think. And these are available for pickup at all branches starting March 7th. Okay, a couple of things. Now, the Story Walk, is that in Ken Reed again, or where do you have it located? We've got a few. The one at Ken Reed is still ongoing. We switch it out about once a month. We've had one at Logie Park recently for Family Day. Uh, we're not thinking that the ice is going to be uh, promising for March break, but we're having one. Uh, we're very excited to have one downtown Lindsay in storefronts is one of our new locations and uh, a couple of other uh, library branches as well. Well, here's hoping the one in Logie Park does uh, come to fruition. I was there for the first time to see the skating rink and it's uh, it's amazing. And I, I hope it stays cold for the next few weeks so we can take advantage of that. That might be a bit too far for me, Denise, but uh, I do appreciate the reason why because Logie Park is a great setup. So what's our well-defined word for this segment uh, today? Okay, so our word today uh, is obstreperous obstreperous. I think I pronounced that right. Okay. You did. It's a bit of a tongue twister as well. So it means noisy or difficult to control. So I've got two examples here. Uh, a good noisy hopefully is March break coming up, of course. Um, difficult to control, um, of course, relating to COVID again. Uh, we're still battling with it, but we might be seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, even if it is sometimes proving to be obstreperous. Okay, obstreperous. Great, that's perfect. I've, I've added to my duffel bag. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Lindsay. Thanks again for having me. Lindsay Heffernan is a library specialist, outreach and community engagement with Kawartha Lakes Public Library. We are brought to you by Ward's Lawyers, our official and exclusive sponsor for all 50 of our episodes. Did I mention we've done 50 of these? Ward's Lawyers offers a wide array of legal services to meet all your needs. Find out what they can do for you at wardlegal.ca. We hope it never happens. A house fire that doesn't just leave you without a home, but forces you into a transition as you attempt to put the pieces back together in your life. It can be a long, stressful process fraught with many challenges, even for those who have the wherewithal to pull it all back together again as best as possible. But there are the immediate needs after the fire, as your home slips away. The Victoria County Disaster Trust Fund exists to assist in that moment. Showing up on site of fires, there to help people with those immediate short-term needs, from lodging to food vouchers to clothing. But the nonprofit organization, which has been around for almost 40 years, is in danger of folding if it can't recruit more volunteers. Volunteers like Andrew Rafton, who joined the aid organization shortly after he retired from his role as chief of the Kawartha Paramedic Service. Andrew, thanks for coming on the program. Pleasure's all mine, Denis. The very first disaster, if I can use that term, the very first one you attended on site. Paint, uh, paint the picture for me. How much do you remember about it? I remember it was certainly very early in the morning. I think got the call shortly after 2 a.m., about a, a house fire out in the Balsam Lake area. And um, it was my first time going out. Unfortunately, I didn't go out alone. Uh, many times we go out with another person from the volunteer organization. So there's two people going out together. So I picked up a, a fellow um, volunteer here in Lindsay and we drove out to, to Balsam Lake where a cottage had cottage home had, had burnt to the ground and the fire department was just cleaning up and uh, we were directed to uh, a young woman and her mother that were keeping warm inside a vehicle. Well, it's probably, you know, everybody's nightmare, right? You know, that to lose everything in a split second. And, you know, and pulling up and, and seeing that house and nothing but a, you know, a pile of rubble and realizing that somebody had lost, 
you know, absolutely everything that they owned. It, it's extremely overwhelming. And I mean, it was overwhelming for us as the, as the volunteers. Like, I can't imagine, I still can't, you know, for all the fires that I've been to, can't imagine what people go through, you know, in that moment when they see everything that they own, you know, lost. But it, it's really hard to get through to them just because, you know, they're in such in such shock. Like literally um, they're not talking or they're just staring, gazing away? Or? They're, they're not able to make decisions rationally. You know, many times um, they're standing out in, in nothing but their pajamas and maybe their slippers. So they've got no clothing. Um, and they're obviously, if we were all in that same position, you'd realize pretty quickly that you just can't think, right? So hopefully we're there to provide some help, you know, for the first 24 hours until they can, you know, come to terms um, with what's happened. Well, tell me about that help, because I know obviously you would have had some training in, in your role with, with, as a paramedic, but for the average person there who, who is a volunteer, what, what kind of help are they giving outside before you even get to the, here are the vouchers for food? Like, what, what are you doing in terms of emotional support at that moment? Well, and that's interesting, because I had attended many such fires when I was a working paramedic, and, you know, I never really thought to myself at the time, you know, what happens to these individuals after we leave? We're, you know, we're there to provide medical care if they need it. But many times people weren't injured, so we would pack up and leave. And I never really dawned on me as to, you know, what kind of help these people would get after we had left until I became a volunteer and realized, you know, that many times they're not injured, but they're standing out there with nothing but the clothes on their back. You know, who is there to, to help them? And now I realize that they really depend on agencies such as ourselves to be able to step in and provide that immediate care until the Red Cross can step in and their insurance companies can, you know, days and, you know, weeks to follow. Just to provide them with a little bit of reassurance that there is somebody there to help and that they're not alone. You know, a cell phone so they can make a call to a loved one who can come perhaps to be with them at, in that time. Unfortunately, sometimes they don't have anyone that they can call to be with. So, you know, just that arm around them to provide that little bit of reassurance that they're not alone, that we're there to help, that we'll see them through these, you know, next few hours or these next few days um, until others can step in and can help them. And we're, and we're very non-judgmental. We have a, a certain amount of money that we can we can we can dispense um, for accommodations, for clothing, and for food. And many times we let the individuals tell us what they need. Many most people are very straightforward, and they'll tell us that you know they they can go stay with a friend that that night, or you know they've got a loved one close by that they can can live with. So many times we're only giving them perhaps some uh, vouchers for clothing for the immediate needs. But sometimes they don't have anyone they, they can call, and they need accommodations for that night. They need some clothing. They need some food to get through with the next few days. So we're able to provide them with vouchers for those three things. In most cases, it's, it's extremely overwhelming for these people, right? They're, they, they're not expecting this kind of help. They're overwhelmed to begin with because of the, the enormity of the fire, you know, and having to deal with that. But then, you know, to have that comfort of knowing that somebody out there does care as a volunteer is extremely gratifying to be able to provide that little bit of help. What can you say about what drew you to volunteering for this organization that, that might encourage others? Because let's face it, there's a lot of places we can all volunteer. 
when I reached out to this organization, I found out that they were in such dire need of, of help. Many of the members are original members that have been there for, you know, 30 or 35 years and are now getting, unfortunately, are getting quite old um, and finding it more and more difficult to come out to some of these fires because most fires tend to happen after the midnight period, you know, in the, in the wee hours of the morning. So it's very hard to see the amount of seniors that volunteer for this organization. Um, it was the least that I could do. It doesn't involve, you know, endless hours each month to volunteer. It happens perhaps once a month. It may not happen for, luckily, for three or four months until there's a fire in the area. But you don't know what that time but, is. But you don't know. Nowhere. So how do you tell that person that, look, it may not happen this month, but it might, and it's going to be at two o'clock in the morning. How do you tell that person that well, you're 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 going to think that this is a worthy cause and you really should hop on board? I think if we were all to put ourselves in that position of being that one whose home has been lost now by a fire, and you're the one standing out there on your front lawn in your pajamas, in your house coat, you know, watching everything that you own, you know, go up in flames. Put yourself in that position, and I think you'd realize how important it would be to volunteer for such an organization that you could be able to be that helper or that, you know, that caregiver in that immediate need. So this just seemed like the natural organization to be able to help. My name is Linda Williams from Ward's Lawyers and Lindsay, your official sponsor of the Advocate podcast, Stories from Cortha Lakes. If you haven't done so already, you can at various locations across Kawartha Lakes, including the Country Cupboard in Fenlon and One-Eyed Jack's Pub and Grill in Lindsay. Okay, what am I talking about? Well, the latest edition of The Advocate magazine, which is 100% local media, don't you know? It's the fourth anniversary edition, as well as the annual Women in Leadership issue. You know, I typically spend a lot of time, well, some time, coming up with what I think are clever, catchy lines when I write an intro to a segment on the program. But this next one kind of wrote itself thanks to the description on a City of Kawartha Lakes webpage. So here goes. So you think you want to farm. That's the title of a series of free webinars by the C of KL in partnership with York, Durham, Northumberland, and Peterborough. I added in the farm sounds there, though. The first session is March 4, and the second one is March 11. It is geared to anyone who's even casually considering making the leap to some kind of farming. Stacy Jibb is the manager with the Agriculture and Rural Department with the County of Durham. Kelly Maloney is an Economic Development Officer with the City of Kawartha Lakes. They're two of the people behind this webinar. I spoke to them last week. Kelly started by explaining that even for those planning on small farms, there's much to be learned from this series. Because they do have to consider all of the same things that a large farm operation would have to do. So things like our um, you know, access to capital is, uh, is usually a challenge because uh, it's one thing to support a rural property with a residence on it. But once you start into a farming operation, there's there's typically a fair amount of capital needed. Setting up a business plan is not something that someone considers as the first step. Yeah, I do think that, that farming has definitely been recognized in more recent years as a business. And it all of the same business management forecasting, uh, you know, 
checking the numbers and setting a plan, following it, and then following up on what, how did you do that year? What changes should you make for next year? If they're coming from outside of a farming career, they're coming to it for the love of the idea. And so part of our challenge with this workshop or an opportunity for those attending is just to help look at some of the, the, the basic structures they should be considering before they make that love of farming decision. Really just at the very basic level, one of the things we're, we're kind of asking people to do is to look at like the very basics. Do you have the personality for farming? Kind of how does that fit? So that's going to be one of the first sessions that we're going to have as part of the, the workshop series is just assessing your fit. So uh, let me ask you that. What are the personality traits that somebody should have to become a farmer? Yeah, I think it's a little bit subjective. It depends. Are you doing it full time? Do you have another job to balance along with it? So and those are some considerations, but I think in terms of being a farmer, a lot of people think of the, you know, you have to wake up early, you have to be a hard worker. Some of those sorts of classic things um, are important, but I think really it just comes down to you have to really like it. Like you have to want to do it and you have to have a bit of a passion for growing food fiber or anything that kind of goes along with farming. So I would really say maybe not so much a personality thing, but are you passionate about it? Because it does take work. It takes dedication and um, it has to be something that you want to do. If you look at a farm family uh, that is maybe um, a livestock or a dairy operation, there's so many different aspects of that business that, an individual can find something that they're really interested in. Maybe they're more interested in growing the crops to feed the livestock, and maybe their partners or uh, or family members in the business are animal lovers, and they want to take on that aspect. Um, that's one of the things that the personality dimension session is going to look at. So you may not be the well-rounded person that knows, you know, all of the technical pieces to a farming operation from, you know, plumbing, electrical and business, bookkeeping, accounting, you know, you got to be a lawyer, uh, all of these things on top of the actual production. But the key is to identify what your strengths are and then pull in team members or service providers. And growing is one thing, but ultimately you are also an entrepreneur as well. So you're an independent business owner often, and, and quite often you're working alone or with a very small team, and you set your goals and your plans and, uh, and try and fill them uh, through the year, through your growing cycle. Uh, but you have to also be prepared for Mother Nature and what she throws at you, uh, because despite all best laid plans, she'll do whatever she wishes. I want to pick up on that point that farmers are used to working on their own. What would you suggest to that rookie farmer about fitting in to that to that industry with these new peers and, and, and making themselves part of it? Um, that's a great question. And I come from a farm myself, so I definitely see this kind of on the personal side. But um, I would say just kind of recognizing the fact that you don't know everything, right? And be willing to learn, like ask questions, show up, listen is really important. So, you know, just, and being open to different perspectives. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, I would say opinions in agriculture these days. So just, you know, being open to listening and, and hearing from other producers locally. And it sounds like a polite way, Stacy, of saying, don't come in here with your big city ideas, telling us how to do our job, but have some humility and ask a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah, that could be one way to say it, I guess. <laughs> 
one big difference that the agriculture community has is that often you, you're never really farming alone. You really do connect with and rely on your farming neighbors. It really is a community, whether it's your next door neighbor down the road or it's getting out to those commodity meetings, information meetings, um, you know, picnics or barbecues, getting to know your neighbors in the sector that you're producing in. Like that's really important, uh, you know, up and down the back roads, you're helping out your neighbor as much as they're helping out you because there's always a time when you need an extra hand. It's very collaborative in that way. And for people listening to this, please understand that in the country, your neighbor could be four kilometers away. <laughs> what would you tell that person who's kind of waffling? What's the big pitch that you would give them, Kelly, to say, not only farm, but don't go in the other direction from the GTA. Come out to Kawartha Lakes. We'd like you to become a farmer here. What would you tell them? Well, we do have lots of available um, agricultural land in Kawartha Lakes. There, there's uh, opportunities, I think, in across our whole region, for sure, to make that decision to join uh, the agricultural community, because it is really a community. We are losing farmers, unfortunately, is a reality uh, every day. Uh, the age of farmers is increasing, the average age, and we really want the new and young farmers to come and start their farming operations. But they should realize that they're really not alone in trying to make those decisions. Every one of our, our five-county area that is supporting this this webinar series has an agriculture or rural development officer that's there to help them. And it really is the start of a conversation. And we can help point them in the direction of those experts that are in the local communities to support them. My thanks to Stacy Jibb with the County of Durham and Kelly Maloney with the City of Fourth Lakes. To register for the free webinar series called So You Think You Want to Farm, go to Eventbrite and simply type in So You Think You Want to Farm. Tell me about your brother. He was uh, always making me laugh. What are you feeling right now? Oh, mad. You went through something no one should ever have to go through. Can you stay just till I fall asleep? That is part of a trailer from The Fallout, a new movie now showing on HBO Max, Crave TV. You can also purchase it on Amazon Prime, which is what I did, and I'm very, very glad I did. The Fallout is a challenging movie. By challenging, I mean it can be hard to watch at times because it is it is so moving, which makes it even harder to not watch. You're drawn in, invested from the very first few frames. You have to be in the right frame of mind to sit down to watch, to really watch The Fallout because the story, although it's fiction, is inspired by very tragic real events. I want you to know that this movie and this interview you're about to hear discusses these tragic events. So please take care and just take a moment before you or the people with you decide to keep listening. Okay, the fallout tells the story of a teen, Veda, and some of her peers and Veda's family as they struggle to deal with the aftermath of a shooting at Veda's high school. It, it's a well-crafted, powerful story. It's also set in California. It was written and directed by Megan Park, who ironically is not American. 
Megan grew up in Lindsay, attended Alexandra Public School. She also grew up in London, Ontario. That's where she was when we spoke. Given her upbringing in both those relatively safe environments, I started by asking Megan what she drew on to create the fallout. I grew up in the total opposite. <laughs> I never felt this fear going to school in Lindsay or in London where I went to high school. I felt so safe. This never, and I also am a little bit older than this generation. So, but I mean, I, it never even entered into my thought process. And I sometimes think that that gives you the perspective. I feel, feel like I'm even more horrified because of that. Like, I just can't believe that that's a reality for so many people today. And I think it, that's what made me want to write it is because I, for, at first though, because I was Canadian and because I hadn't been through it, I felt like I wasn't the right person to do it. So I was really scared because it's obviously like a super, you know, touchy subject matter and um, very polarizing. But then I just, every time another one of these school shootings would happen and I would read about it and I would almost feel myself getting more immune to getting those reactions on my, getting those notifications on my phone. I was like, I can't not, I can't get immune to this. Like, I can't just not think about that. This is a reality. And, and also, you know, having a child and starting to think about this problem continuing to be her problem. It just, it was such an emotional decision. It, it just, and in terms of research, I, I talked to a lot of people who had been through a school shooting or just a mass shooting and the parents of these children. And I wrote the movie first because I didn't want it to be someone's direct story. And it, sadly, there's been so many school shootings. It wasn't based off one particular event, but it was sort of a culmination of, you know, re reading lots of interviews, watching lots of interviews and documentaries, speaking to actual survivors once I'd written the script to make sure that it tracked emotionally. And then truthfully, just diving into the mindset of what it must be like to live with that fear and have to go to school every day and be 16 years old, you know, so it was kind of a hodgepodge of all of those different things, really. Other than the obvious, what through line did you find in, in all your research of all those horrible situations that you were drawing interviews from? Was there one constant theme that you found that, wow, this is one thing that they all share? What I took away from it was how much it doesn't just affect the person that went through it, which we obviously know, but just the trickle down effect of the, their siblings, their parents, their friends um, was really devastating um, to hear about. And then also, I think that just everybody copes with this in such a different way. And I thought that we had seen a lot of the stories about these incredible kids who were able to come forward and, you know, speak about what they'd been through right away and turn it into like incredible, you know, movements and change. But there's so many kids who aren't able to do that and feel really guilty about it. And there also becomes this, the word that a lot of people use was trauma hierarchy um, in their high schools, you know, we're like, why are you so upset? You know, you weren't even in the building where it actually happened or, you, you know, there, it becomes this sort of, um, you know, trauma hierarchy. And that was really interesting to me to explore as well. How far away from Lindsay and London did you feel when you were hearing all those stories and yeah, you're already shaking your head and, and rolling your eyes at that one. <laughs> I can, I can sense that, that there was a moment or a few moments when you thought I, this is hard for me to grasp. Very hard for me to grasp horrifying and that's what drove me to want to write this story you know i mean it, it was i can't believe that still now this is still a problem this isn't a problem of the past this is something that kids worry about every single day when they go to school and they're sitting in math class just trying to learn and when the movie came out 
it was so wonderful to get all these amazing reviews and people love the movie. But what was so moving was getting all these private message DMs, you know, from kids who were saying, this is exactly how I feel. Like every time I'm in math class, I'm looking like every time the teacher changes a seating chart, I'm thinking, how close am I to the window? Where's the exit? How, where can I hide if this were to happen? You know, it's it's always in the back of their minds. I was grateful that the movie spoke to them, but it was devastating just to hear their their connection to it in that way. As I watched the movie and, and I was hyper engaged, and I should tell you that I made a point of watching it kind of in the middle of the day because I knew it was going to sit with me. I just knew that I was going to, it was not just going to be one and done. And the word I, I would use to best describe it is that it was, it was patient. I'm hoping you can Thank pick you. up on that. Oh, well, okay. So that's a good thing. So maybe elaborate on that, on how I'm asking you to explain my explanation of it being patient. That's actually such a compliment because I, and thank you. I appreciate that. I think that the journey of her grief and her process of dealing with this, I really wanted there to be space to breathe, you know, and I didn't want it to feel rushed. I wanted it to feel real and grounded and grief isn't linear, you know, so I wanted to try to capture that. And so I wanted the movie to have a pace that was um, patient or, or just had, had air in it, which I feel like sometimes you don't always get with certain types of films or certain, especially when you're making it with certain people overseeing things, people get nervous about taking that room to breathe. But I felt like it was so important to connect with Veda in that way was to kind of be on that journey with her and have those moments of stillness and moments where so much is said in without anything being said. And um, I noticed that, was... that, Megan, there were a couple of moments that my wife and I just glommed onto where there were close-ups of her biting her lip or when she was going to visit her, her friend Mia and Mia was anxiously waiting for her. And I don't want to give away too much of the movie, so but I, I'm going to give this is a small story. No, no, okay. When she's by the door, anxiously waiting for her friend and and we can see both perspectives and, and Mia pretends to walk like she's stepping. It was just those little moments that did, there were no words spoken, but how, how conscious were you of, of, of using those devices to just create that patience, that space that you, you talk about? Well, it's funny you bring up that moment because that was a moment there that a lot of people told me to cut out. They don't trust the audience sometimes and they really want things to have this pace. It's moving, moving, moving constantly. Or they can't imagine that people can understand what's happening with so little said or just from an emotional feeling. And that moment was something to me that was so important because it said so much about Mia. Also, a lot of people don't have... Um, faith in younger audiences to be able to pick up on that. And I think you can really feel the difference if you're watching, you know, a really elevated limited series or something that's made for adults, they're more willing to take chances on that. And, and so what happens is then you get these young audiences watching shows for adults, but they can't necessarily understand what the adults are going through, but they're, they're seeking that kind of elevated content. And that was something that I was hoping to try to tap into with this movie is just to make something that felt authentic. And, and I yeah. find often, as I'm sure you have, and you're in the industry, that the conversations between teenagers, the way it's scripted, it's, it's a little too uh, fanged and contrived, but, but there was a real, it, it felt very real. So how much of that was, how much did you let your actors just improvise the conversation? Well, I started out by when we had the script, really going through it and saying like, would you say this? Would you not say that? Here I had these actual 16-year-olds and an actual 11-year-old, you know, who played Amelia. I think I would be so, <laughs> I would be an idiot to not take advantage of that insight into their world to make sure 
that, you know, everything that they said felt authentic to being an actual 16 year old. And a lot of the moments um, that are the more kind of like fun, lighthearted moments ended up being moments of improv between, between them, because they're going to say, they're going to have the best jokes and the best kind of, you know, banter naturally, if you give them the space to do it and sometimes guide it a little bit here and there. Something that struck me in the movie, uh, Megan, within 15 or 20 minutes, and, and you've, I'm sure, seen a lot of movies built around the lives of, of young people, of young adults, of teenagers. And, yeah. and I find that the directors and the writers will often go to, to the usual teen angst tropes. Uh, my parents don't understand me. They don't discount. You, you seem to avoid that. Like at one point, Veda even mentions to, uh, to, to Mia that, no, my parents are actually really great. And it would have been easy to make Mia uh, the pretty popular mean girl. And, and then as the story develops, we find out that, no, she's actually just a nice, decent, as you mentioned, kind of a clumsy person. So uh, why did you go that route versus the formula that so many other directors and writers go with? Because I... I think that formula doesn't work anymore. <laughs> I think it's, uh, and I think young people, especially Gen Z, they're tired of that. I think this is such a unique generation. And I think some of those kind of tropes of the past were more palatable, but I think this generation has a really high bullshit radar. And I think that they're, they're worried about such different things. And one of the interesting conversations when talking with some of the parents of survivors of school shootings and violence, is they said our kids are actually very mature in so many ways because of what they've been through and because of this fear that they feel every day going to school. But they're actually so much younger in other ways too. Like they're learning to drive later. They're not just going and hanging out with their friends at the mall. You know, their lives, actually a lot of it has to do with gun violence is, is really shaped their social experiences a lot. And I think that people haven't caught up to that a lot of the times yet. I remember talking just recently to my friend's daughter who was like 13 and, and bullying is looked at in such a different way. Even like there's a social responsibility and kids are, they're actually thinking about life is like, okay, I don't know if the planet is going to sustain me till old age. <laughs> Truthfully, they're actually like thinking about that. So how does that kind of shape like what I'm going to do with my life? And I think that their family and their lives and the world is so different. And I think if you look at a 16 year old right now, you know, they're born during right around the financial crash, like crash. They were kindergartners when Sandy Hook happened. You know, they were eight years old or nine years old when Trump was elected. So, you know, 13 when this global pandemic hit. And I think to just kind of think their experience can be the same as some of these sort of very black and white cut and dry tropes of past characters that are portrayed, I think is just it doesn't work anymore. Spoiler alert, my generation doesn't like those tropes anymore either. So it was exactly yeah. it was refreshing to just see that that the that these people were layered. They weren't, you know, caricatures out of a John Hughes movie, for instance. Yeah. And I wanted to make the family I, I hate when you just see something where it's like, oh mom, get out of my room. Like it's that's just so that's just not usually the experience anymore. I don't want you to give away the ending, certainly, but my my <laughs> wife noted this. The ending was, she described it as gutsy. So without giving away what the ending was, because I want people to see this movie. I want them to rent it. I want them to buy it. Why did you choose the ending that you did? Well, you know, I will say this, that I think when you make a movie, it changes so much, you know, from the script to what you're filming, what you, what you get and what you don't get. And then when you're in the edit, it changes into a whole other movie. 
But the ending was something that never changed from script to the final version, because I always knew it had to end the way that it ended, because I wanted to remind people that this is not, we're not making a movie about something that used to happen. We're making a movie about something that is still a problem right now. So that was a very conscious decision that stayed consistent from the very beginning to the very end. My thanks to Lindsay native Megan Park, well-respected actor and also a very well-respected writer-director. Her feature film, The Fallout, is streaming now on HBO Max and Crave TV. You can also rent or buy it on Prime, which is what I did and I am so glad that I did. This is an excellent and an important film. I want to shout out two people who really made that interview happen. Without them, I'm not sure it would have happened. So Glenda Morris and Kathy Anderson, I owe you. Fancy coffee's on me once. Boiling overs open again. That's coming, right? Big thanks to Ward's Lawyers, our official sponsor. Carissa, Ward, and the team of lawyers at Ward's have you covered. Go to wardlegal.ca to learn what they can do for you. The music you hear on the program was written and produced by the recent birthday fella, Gerald Van Haltren. I'm the guy who writes and produces this show. My name is Denis Grignel. I'll be back in two weeks with another episode of the Advocate Podcast, Stories from Kawartha Lakes. Until then, be smart, be safe, be patient, and equally important, be nice to one another. Is there anything you're looking forward to doing in Lindsay when you come back? Honestly, just walking around the downtown, going to see Academy Theater and definitely checking out the library. I have some of my fondest memories there. So those are the, those are the, and also Ken Reed Park. I used to like ski there all the time as a kid. So it'll be fun to take my daughter back there. That's a great spot. You know what? They have a talking forest now there where you can download an app on your phone and the trees talk to you.